Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Good to worship with you. Excited to dive into God's word with you. We're going to be continuing in our series in the gospel of Matthew this morning. So will you join me in prayer before we dive into God's word together? Father, we've come to hear from you. We desire to hear from you. We desire to hear your word. Lord, we need to be transformed. We need to be liberated, delivered, redeemed, shaped, convicted, consoled, challenged, comforted, Lord, and only you and your word can do that. So would you speak now as we open it? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the spring of 2012, my wife and I got to go on a trip to the country of Israel with the Kanakuk Institute. And we were still dating at the time, so not only was I excited to walk where Jesus had walked, but I was excited to sit by Emily on a 13-hour plane ride and try to wow her with my movie knowledge. In all seriousness, it was a truly wonderful experience to visit Capernaum and the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And at the end of one of our days, we were going to stop by a spot on the Jordan River that had been converted into a place where tourists could visit and be baptized. And some in our group were going to be participating. Some of our group were going to be baptized that day. And we were running late to get to the place. And so I, I overheard our tour guide. And, and tour guides in Israel are like the top notch. They're, they're, as, they're as high as it gets when it comes to professionals. And Herschel, who's a Messianic Jew, I hear him speaking over the phone to whoever's gonna, whoever runs this stop on the Jordan. And he's saying, we're coming, we're coming. We'll be really quick. And so I remember he came and he told those who were participating it's going to be like tea bags. We're going to dip one, and then we're going to dip another, and then we're going to dip another. And I thought, man, that sounds so sacred. <laughs> well, when we arrived at that spot on the Jordan, there were tour buses everywhere. And as we walked through the gates, there were people up and down the banks, and there were people in white gowns waiting in the river to be baptized. It was quite the scene. It was everywhere that you could see. And when I read about John's John the Baptist's ministry in and at and near the Jordan River in Matthew 3, I can't help but have that scene come to mind. No, there weren't tour buses or cameras or booths where you got your towel and your gown, but there were a lot of people. There were people in the water and on the banks and maybe other modes of transportation, maybe a donkey or two. These were sinners that had come to hear a message of repentance, to confess their sins and to be baptized. It made sense that the people that had come to hear John and be baptized were there. It made sense. But then in verse 13, someone shows up that doesn't make sense. Jesus shows up. And his appearance only makes sense if he's there to teach and baptize others. It doesn't make sense at all if he's there to join them in being baptized. But as we just read, that's exactly why he was there. Maybe you've thought a lot about the baptism of Jesus. Maybe you've never thought very deeply about the baptism of Jesus. But either way, wherever you fall on that spectrum, I'm telling you that this scene has much to say to us about who Jesus is and what he came to do and who we are in light of him. So let's lean in together and ask God to, to maybe... Read this text afresh today. And as we look, I want, I want to notice three things. The humility of Jesus, 
the coronation of Jesus and our identity in Jesus. The humility of Jesus, the coronation of Jesus, and our identity in Jesus. First notice the humility of Jesus. Our text tells us that Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized. And John responds in a completely understandable and appropriate way. He says, he says in verse 14, well, he tries to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you. What are you talking about? And yet you come to me? Listen, sometimes we read the Bible and we read it like a textbook or a novel or like fiction, but this really happened. So put yourself in this scene for a moment. Can you imagine it? John is, is preaching his message of repentance. People are listening and responding. And then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus walking towards him. And I wonder if, just, if John just stopped speaking for a moment and, and he began to think, oh man, it's about to happen. It's about to begin. The Gospel of John actually tells us that he sees them. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, this is him. This is the one I've been telling you about, the one who's... Sandals, I'm not worthy to untie. The one who's going to baptize you with fire and Holy Spirit, it's him. But then Jesus says, baptize me. What? Baptize you? No, 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 no. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who needs to be baptized. Not you. And Jesus answers, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all Righteousness. Essentially, he's saying, I know this doesn't make sense to you, but it's necessary for me to do this so that I can do all that I came to do, so that I can give you all that I came to give you. Isn't that remarkable? The God of all the universe waded into some muddy river water, surrounded by sinners and religious hypocrites, and he let this sinful, eccentric country preacher baptize him. The humility displayed by Jesus here is staggering. But why? Why would Jesus say it was necessary for him to be baptized? We know that from earlier in the chapter that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and, and Jesus had nothing to repent of. Not only do we believe that Jesus was sinless, but being fully God, we don't believe that he had the ability to sin. He didn't have a sin nature. There was no corruption in him at all. As, for, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Think about that. Yes, he was a toddler and he didn't sin. He was a teenager and he didn't sin. He probably used a hammer a lot growing up and he didn't sin. Can you imagine? He didn't need to be baptized in order to repent of sin. So why was it necessary? The key for us is in his words. Because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. These two words, fulfillment and righteousness, are really key to understanding what Matthew is trying to communicate in his gospel. One of the main things that he's been doing in the first three chapters is to trying to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, beginning with his genealogy in chapter 1. And here in verse 15, this is at least the fifth time that the word fulfill or fulfilled that has already shown up in the book. When God repeats things, we need to take notice. As for the meaning of righteousness, Frederick Dale Bruner tells us that doing the will of God is Matthew's definition of righteousness. But I like the way Jonathan Pennington puts it. 
He says that righteousness here means heart deep, whole person, faithful obedience to God. Heart deep, whole person, faithful obedience to God. So when Jesus says that his baptism is the way to fulfill all righteousness, at least part of what he is saying or part of what he's doing is publicly declaring that his intention in all of life was to do and perfectly obey the will of God. That where every other human being who ever came before him failed to be able to perfectly obey the commands of God, Jesus would be perfectly faithful and obedient. And notice that he doesn't just say in verse 15, this is the way for me to fulfill all righteousness. He says, this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why does he say us? Because like his incarnation, like his sinless life, like his death and resurrection, Jesus' baptism is for and was for us. He didn't need to be baptized for himself. He has no need. As one commentator puts it, Jesus is baptized not because he shares our need, but in order to share it. Not because he shares our need, but in order to share it. By entering the baptismal waters where sinners are baptized, he is announcing from the very beginning who he has come for and what he's come to do. He's come to identify with sinners. He's come to stand in the place where we are supposed to stand, to go under the waters for us, knowing one day soon he would go into the grave for us. We cannot read the Gospels without reading them in the shadow of the cross. And that great exchange, that great exchange where where Christ takes our sin upon himself and gives us his perfect righteousness begins here in a muddy river surrounded by the sinners he came to save. What a savior. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We should be floored. We should be floored by Jesus' actions here. I hope you are. Bruner writes, I consider this incident, incident Jesus' first miracle, the miracle of his humility. The first thing Jesus does for the human race is go down with it into the deep waters of repentance and baptism. Jesus' whole life will be like this. It is well known that Jesus ends his ministry on a cross between thieves. It deserves to be as well known that he begins his ministry in a river surrounded by sinners. This is our gentle and lowly Savior demonstrating to us from the beginning what kind of king he is and what kind of kingdom he's come to establish. Listen, the way up is down. The way up is down. And Jesus makes a way for us to join him in his baptism by humbly submitting himself to be baptized by John in order to fully identify with us. Next, we see the coronation of Jesus in verses 16 and 17. Just notice the scene. You've got to be moved here. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven again said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Again, don't, don't read this scene like it's a paragraph in a textbook. This scene is simply stunning. It's, it's cosmic in nature. Its meaning is seismic in nature. So much is being revealed here. 
Since the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve chose sin in order to try to be like God, instead of enjoying being with God, the whole storyline of Scripture has been looking forward to the seed of the woman, this promised Redeemer and Savior, who would crush the head of the serpent. As we've said before, behind every word, every verse of the Old Testament whispers, he is coming, he is coming, he is coming. And in these two verses, God is trying to say as loudly and clearly as he can, he is here. Don't wait anymore, don't look anymore, don't look for another Messiah, don't look for another influencer, don't look for anything else. He's here, he's right in front of you. This is him. This moment is sometimes referred to as the coronation of Jesus. Why? Well, there's at least a couple of things being fulfilled in and affirmed about Jesus here by God the Father and the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm going to just take a quick trek, but stay with me. In the book of Isaiah, there's this servant that Isaiah talks about in several places. A servant that will come and suffer for the people. And in Isaiah 42, 1, God says of him, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. And notice the last part. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. This servant is spoken of in several other places in Isaiah, most notably Isaiah 53, which says that he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. So that there's this promised servant in the Old Testament who would suffer for the people. Then in Psalm 2, we're told about this anointed one. In verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 2, say this of him, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, this is God saying to the anointed one, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Stay with me. We have this promised suffering servant on whom God will put his spirit in Isaiah. And then in Psalm 2, we have this anointed one who is called both king and son by God. And before this moment in Matthew 3, there's nobody that would have put this suffering servant and this king that's revealed in Psalm 2 together. But that's exactly what happens. This moment in Matthew 3 is Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism. Don't miss it. As the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, God is saying, this is my promised servant who I appointed to bring good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And as the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, God is saying, here is my promised king, my son, and all who take refuge in him are happy. I cannot overstate the significance of what's happening here. There's a reason that all four gospels mention the baptism of Jesus while only two Talk about his actual birth. I'm not saying that his birth isn't hugely important, but I am saying that his baptism is way more important, important than we maybe realize. In effect, God is saying with Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.20, for every one of God's promises, every one of God's promises, every one of God's promises is yes in him. In this coronation ceremony, God is saying that all the Bible, all that I've said and done, this whole story and plan were leading to this moment. The whole of human history has been barreling towards this moment when God would announce that his spirit-anointed servant, his matchless and dearly loved son, is here. 
This doesn't mean that somehow Jesus was not the king or the son of God before this moment. He was. He was the beloved son of God from eternity past. There's never been a moment where he hasn't been the son, where he hasn't been God. The doctrine of the Trinity, which we see visibly and explicitly in this passage, says that there is one God who has eternally existed as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are equal in glory, equal in glory, and one in essence, nature, and will. If that's confusing to you, that's okay. Welcome to the club. The Trinity is confusing in some ways, but it's also majestic and so important for our faith and the gospel. So Jesus has always been the son, but in this moment, God is making it abundantly clear to the world who he, who he is. And it's from this God-affirmed identity, this office, if you will, that Jesus will begin and live out his ministry. So we've seen the humility of Jesus. We've seen the coronation of Jesus in these verses. Now I want to bring us home by looking at our identity in Jesus. You see, his baptism... In Jesus' baptism, we get to see what God offers to and gives to us as believers in Jesus. Listen, the Bible says something crazy. It says something crazy. I mean, unbelievable, really. It says that if you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that if you've trusted in him alone for salvation and the forgiveness of sin, then as Colossians 3.3 says, you, the old you, has died and your life has been hidden with him hidden with Christ in God. To be hidden with Christ in God means that through faith in Jesus, we become so one with him, so united with him, that when God looks at us, he only sees Christ. How is that so? Because something deeply mystical and spiritual and objective happens when God invades our heart. Theologians refer to it as imputed righteousness meaning that the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ that we've talked about just a minute ago is counted for and credited to us. That God declares us righteous, right with God, not because of anything we have done or could do, but because of what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection for us. So listen, if, the, if a lot of this has felt like maybe theology or biblical theology, and you're like, I don't know where we're at, listen to why this matters for you. In that moment, when we come to faith in Jesus, God writes over the story of your life, over the rebellious sins and all the painful moments, over all the good works that you try to do to pay for your sins and earn his favor. He writes grace. He writes Christ. And that's all he sees when he looks at your life with Jesus, hidden in Jesus. Isn't that an overwhelming thought? Bruner notes that the three cosmic signs that are seen at Jesus' baptism, an open heaven, the dove spirit, and the supernatural declaration of divine love are all given to us in Christ. Do you see that? Think about it. At the very moment that God gives birth to faith in us, the heavens are torn open for us, and we can have direct and intimate and personal relationship with God. In that same moment, God comes to live, to a, live in us through the Holy Spirit who empowers us for life with him. And we receive the divine favor of the Father who adopts us as his children. This all happens at the very nanosecond of faith. Isn't that remarkable? Now let me just make 
someone, someone knew this was coming. Let me just make a few comments on Christian baptism. Can I do that? Because baptism isn't just for some people. It isn't just for some denominations. Baptism is for every believer in Jesus. It's a key aspect of faithfully following him. Because as Jesus was baptized in order to fully identify with us as sinners, we are baptized in order to fully identify with him. I often get to meet with, which is great. I love to hear people's testimonies. I often get to meet with people to talk about baptism. Why they want to be baptized, that they understand the gospel. I actually get to do this with a young man next Sunday. And, and every meeting's different. Every person's story is different. But at some point, I always take them to Romans 6. Where Paul says, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptized into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. There's no more clear place in scripture that describes the meaning of baptism. Listen, at City Life, we believe that baptism is both physical and spiritual. No, baptism doesn't save you. Grace through faith in Jesus saves you. But when you step into those waters behind me, Christ is really present with you. And you are saying, my life is hidden with him now. A marriage ceremony is happening as you vow to do his will by his grace. So can, can I just... Everybody with me? Can, can I just use a trump card for just a moment? Is that okay? Can I use a trump card? To the person who asks, does everyone need to be baptized? I say yes, because Christ was baptized for you in order that you might be baptized into him. To the person who says, yeah, but my, I placed my faith in Jesus at an early age and I've been walking with him for a long time. I just never really got around to baptism. Is it really important anymore? I say yes, because Christ was baptized for you so that you could be baptized into him. And to the person who says, yeah, but most of the time they're putting young people in the water up there. I'm kind of older. Is it weird? Should I do it? Is, it? is it too different for me? No, because Christ was baptized for you so that you could be baptized into him. Friends, it's not a light thing. It's a weighty thing. And it's commanded of all who believe in Jesus. So if you're a believer and you've never been baptized since trusting in Jesus, let's not wait. Let's get you in the water so you can be faithful to him. I'm starting to make somebody nervous in here. Brett's going to start doing spontaneous baptisms when Andy's out of the building. I'm going to get my swimming trunks on. Not today, but maybe next week. Listen, especially if you're maybe wrestling with this Jesus thing or you're a weary, tired Christian who, who just feels like life is really hard right now. Let me close with this thought, this thought. We live in a world that's utterly confused by this word identity, who I am. The question we ask is, who am I? But I don't think that's the best question. I don't think that's the question we need answered the most. I don't, I don't think it's who am I. I think the question we need answered the most is who am I in Christ? The world will tell you that what's most true of you is found somewhere inside of you. But if you're anything like me, then if you look inside, I got a mess of sin and selfishness and anxiety and insecurity and shame. 
What we really need, what you really need is something outside of yourself, something immovable, something solid, something true to build our identities on. And Jesus is showing us in his baptism that he's the only place that you can find this. I wonder, Christian, listen in, lean in, lean in. Christian, what do you believe is God's disposition towards you? How do you believe God feels about you? How do you believe God views you? There's maybe no more important question to answer if you want to live the life that God intends for you to live. Do you think that he's, his disposition towards you is hostile? Because you went back to that same sin again this week? Do you think that he's thoroughly disappointed in you? Do you think that he sees you as a screw-up? Or worse, do you think he's totally apathetic to you? That he just doesn't care about your life at all? Can I combat those lies from hell for you for just a moment? Can I just do that? If you're in Christ, if you've trusted in him, then God the Father speaks the same words over you that he spoke over Jesus. This is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe that? Because it's true. If you're hidden in Christ, then what's true of Jesus is true of you. And someone's hair on the back of their neck just stood up. Yes, if you're in Christ, then what's true of Jesus is true of you. It sounds scandalous. It should. That's why it's the good news. And what would it do to your life if you really lived like that's how God views you? What would it change? How would it change how you live, how you see yourself? My daughter is seven. And I already see her wrestling with her identity. I already see her comparing herself with other girls, saying words over herself like, I'm not smart enough, or I'm not good enough. I'll never be. And I can see Satan wanting to heap shame on her in those moments. But you know what happens when I speak words of affirmation and blessing and love over her? When I say sudden, you're my favorite girl in all the world. I think you're so smart. You're so beautiful. You're so funny. I love you to the moon and stars and back. You know what happens when I say those things to her? There's literally a physical response, a physical reaction. She literally, a, a smile begins to spread across her face. Her shoulders begin to lift and her whole disposition and mood changes. Why? Because she's living in her father's delight and approval. And this is what God wants for you. This is what Jesus came to give us. If you're in Christ, then Zephaniah 3 says that God literally delights to sing over you. I wonder if you believe that. I'm a, how could that ever be true? I'm just a screw up. I'm a mess up. I just make mistakes all the time. I, I never do it right. I'm always impatient. If you're in Christ, then he delights to sing over you. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Do you believe that's true of you? Because in Jesus it is. Pray with me.